0: Hello all my wonderful friends. I'm Amelia Allen and this is Altitude Crime. Thanks so much for tuning in today. So as I've said in the last couple episodes, I've had a ton of listener suggestions rolling in and today's is actually a listener suggestion. So a big shout out to Donna for sending this one along to me. I actually was not familiar with this case. And here's a little fun fact about me. Cults and like cult Culture, I guess, kind of totally freaks me out. And you might not really think of Colorado when you think of cults, but we do have quite a few that operate out of the state. The case we are covering today involves a cult that operated out of Norwood, Colorado. And it's not some big, you know, name that you've heard of, but it's definitely a cult faction. So without further ado, thank you again, Donna, for this case suggestion, and let's get into it. So my personal view of cult dynamics are basically like a larger version of abusive relationships. It's a long process of manipulation and there's a lot of breaking down of a person that goes into getting them to do these kind of wild things that we often see with cults or doomsday cults, things like that. So how I'm going to tell our story today is going to start with the beginning of this particular cult and move through their criminal actions. There's a lot to cover here, so I hope I am doing things as concisely and in a way that makes as much sense as possible. So our cult leader in this story is actually a woman, and her name was Madani Seuss, and she hailed from Haiti. Another one of her followers was actually her, which this is a conflicting report out there, either partner or husband, who was also from Haiti, and his name was Ashford Archer. So the group really starts with these two. Now, what was the belief of this particular cult? Well, Sue said that her and her followers were not human beings. They were actually spiritual beings that would have no issue surviving what she saw as an upcoming apocalypse. According to Kristen Pelisek's reporting for People, according to a source who had been involved with this group at some point, They said, quote, they are guided by their dreams. They will stay someplace until they have a dream and then they go someplace else. They think they can heal people, unquote. Seuss asked her followers to call her Amma or Yahweh. Now, I couldn't find a really good descriptor of what that Amma means, but I know that Yahweh is actually the Hebrew name for God in the Bible. So she was essentially asking her followers to call her God. Seuss and Archer started to gain followers around 2015. In the spring of 2015, Aika Eden joined the group. She actually, her daughter recalls coming home from school one day and Eden just like destroyed their phones, burned all their photos, burned their driver's licenses and ID cards and just like was done with the quote unquote normal world. And then Eden moved into an apartment with Archer and Seuss in North Carolina. Also in 2015, Nikisha Bramble joined the group. Eden had actually convinced Bramble and Bramble's young daughters to join the group. So Nakisha Bramble had two daughters. And at the time of our story, so not in 2015 when they joined, but a few years later when we're going to cover our story, the sisters were eight year old Hannah Elizabeth Rosalina Marshall and 10 year old Michaela Victoria Roberts. Now, for some reason, when Nikisha Bramble and her daughters joined the groups, they called these three women the pinks, or they also referred to Hannah and Michaela as pink one and pink two. Now I'm unclear the really reason for that, but obviously from them entering the group, these women were pointed out as being different. Nobody else had a nickname like this. So this maybe is already an indicator of where our story is going. So as the group moves along and they're moving from place to place, they met Frederick Alec Blair. Now, Blair had a farm that grew vegetables and marijuana in Norwood, Colorado, and Blair ended up joining the group after meeting Seuss and everybody else at a truck stop in Grand Junction, Colorado in May 2017. Seuss had explained how part of Their belief was they were on this spiritual pilgrimage to search for St. Michael, the archangel, which if you're not familiar with this biblical reference, St. Michael is typically depicted as a type of warrior in this eternal battle between good and evil. And Seuss, upon meeting Blair, came to the conclusion that he was the saint in the flesh. He needed to join the group. And this was concluding their pilgrimage to find St. Michael. So with this, the whole group ended up settling in Norwood, Colorado, on Blair's farm. Norwood is about 30 minutes west of Telluride, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with that name, even if you don't live in Colorado or haven't lived in Colorado. It's a big ski resort town. Norwood is also near Uncompahgre National Forest which has now been joined with Gunnison and Grand Mesa National Forest. So it's a really huge piece of national park land. Norwood has a population of about 500 people. So we are talking a teeny tiny town on the edge of a national forest. So when the group moved to this area, they started living on Blair's property in cars and tents. Blair previously had not been living on the farm. He'd only been working the farm, but started to live on the farm as well. Once the group moved there, once the group settled in Norwood, the faction between Seuss and her followers and the pinks started to really crack. So Hannah and Michaela were thought to be impure by Seuss. And then of course, by her followers. Seuss had said that they had both been possessed in past lives and that it made their spirits unclean for the rest of eternity, basically. And Seuss even claimed that in Michaela's past life, she had been a harlot and that put everyone's souls in danger that had been around her. So, Michaela was separated first, and she was separated from the other children in the group. She wasn't allowed to socialize with them or play with them. So, you really start to see that isolation begin to happen. Now, at some point, both Michaela and Hannah were put in a 1999 Toyota Camry that was on the farm. The farm was right off the road, so the car was located on County Road, Y43, and Thunder Road, right off of the farm there. The car that they were put into uh, was actually under an alias of Ica Edens. She went by the alias Kara Sandalfon, and that's what the car was registered under. Now, not only were Michaela and Hannah isolated from everyone else by being put in the car and no one was allowed to visit or interact with the girls, they also put no food and no water in the car with these two young girls. But Hannah and Michaela were not the only ones to be under Seuss's wrath. Blair, and I'm assuming the rest of her followers, believed that Seuss had magical powers that she could use to control them. According to Crystal Bonavian's reporting for Fox 13 Memphis, Bramble's attorney alleged that Seuss exercised a, quote, reign of terror over her followers, unquote. Her biggest threat included, quote, she threatened to have people's souls harvested by reapers. They would be sent to the purge. They would become abominations or sent to abomination, She decided, more importantly, who could live and die, unquote. As a part of this living or dying, Seuss was actually the one who prepared food for the group. And at times when food was low, she chose to not feed Bramble and some of the children. So it wasn't uncommon for Bramble and Blair to go to the local food pantry and get food for Bramble and for the children on the farm. Now, in the midst of all of this going on, Seuss had impressed to her followers that the August 21st, 2017 solar eclipse was the date of the apocalypse. She thought this apocalypse would move them from where they were on earth to another spiritual realm. So in leading up to this apocalypse, there was a sort of lockdown on the farm, and this led to the group leaving Hannah and Michaela in the car on the other side of the farm from where they had kind of entered this lockdown preparing for the apocalypse. Well, as you all know at this point, the August 21st, 2017 solar eclipse came and went without bringing on the end of the world. According to Crystal Bonavian's reporting for Fox 13, Seuss explained to her followers that this was their fault for, quote, not being pure enough, unquote. So given that it was her followers fault, the apocalypse did not happen. Punishment ensued. Seuss demanded that Blair put his dog in a crate and that the dog be restricted from any food or water. She also sent Bramble, Hannah and Michaela's mom, to a car without food or water. And Bramble was actually pretty far into a pregnancy at this point. And she actually fled this car in the ranch on September 6, 2017. Red flags went up when a friend of Blair's came by the farm and saw the state of his dog. So the friend called Blair's mom, who called his father. And this is when things really get rolling on investigators and the public knowing what's going on at the ranch. Blair's father, Franklin Fletcher, came to the farm and Blair basically confessed to knowing about there being two dead girls in a car on his own property. Blair's father then notified the police immediately. But while he was on the property, he approached this vehicle to take a picture of the license plate, which congratulations to Franklin Fletcher. This was a, a great thought because... This group easily could have moved this car in the time between him coming and the authorities coming. So this was great foresight on his part. It didn't end up having to be used, but it was a great thought. So he took a picture of the license plate on the car and he noticed there was a tarp of the car and there were flies. But specifically, there were blow flies. Now, if you're familiar with hiking and seeing carcasses or any kind of slaughter or anything like that, blowflies appear when there is a dead body. It's specifically a part of the decomposition stage that they become a part of that ecological process. And when police arrived on the scene, they would know the same. The bodies of Hannah and Michaela were found on September 8th, 2017, inside the car that they had been put in as punishment on the Norwood farm. The investigators immediately took Seuss, Archer, Eden, and Blair into custody. They wouldn't take the girl's mother into custody, though, because as I said, she had fled the ranch. But once she arrived in Grand Junction, which was her trajectory when she fled, She did turn herself in. That was on the following day on September 9th, 2017. Seuss also had her own two children that lived on the ranch. And these children were taken in by child protective services. When the investigation began with little information to go on, the public was still outraged and the affidavit regarding this case was unsealed at the request of the media and the public. We don't know exactly when the girls entered the car for the last time, but we do know that Michaela was probably sent to the car around July 20th, 2017, and Hannah could have been sent at the same time or at a time very close to that. But investigators did know that they had been dead in the vehicle for at least two weeks. This meant that they had perished sometime in mid-August. Investigators would find out that on August 19th, Blair had had a dream about police coming to the farm and told Seuss about it. Now we know that this group was really guided by their dreams. And if you had two dead bodies on your farm, wouldn't you dream about the police coming? But anyway, so Seuss had her followers seal the doors to the car with tape and then cover the entire car with a tarp to try to conceal it and what was inside. Now, also on this same day, on August 19th, San Miguel County Sheriff's Office Sergeant Dan Koval, who was responsible for inspections of marijuana farms, actually went to the property for a routine inspection. He had talked to Blair on multiple occasions at this point, and he noticed that he was definitely off during this inspection. According to Crystal Bonavian's reporting for Fox 13, Blair had told Koval during this visit, quote, He told me that he had destroyed all his marijuana and that he was no longer going to be cultivating marijuana and told me I was interrupting a religious ceremony and that I needed to leave. He was like, I destroyed it all. You don't ever have to come back, unquote. Now, Colvall, knowing that Seuss's children lived on the farm and noticing a car covered in tarp, attempted to file a report about this. But an investigation was not started as the report did not meet the requirements necessary. Now, the timeline here, this was August 19th. They believe the girls died sometime in mid-August. They could have already been dead at this point, but it does beg the question of if investigators could have gotten in there sooner, could the outcome of this been any different? Now, in addition to the girls' bodies being found inside the car, there was also empty food cans in the car. Now, we know that they were punished without any food, so you can then assume that this food had been consumed in the car previously, and that makes sense because this was not the first time that the girls were in the car as punishment. It was often used as a space to banish them to when Seuss felt that they were being unclean and pure, whatever adjective you want to use. There was also a diary in the car that one the girls had been riding in while they were banished there. And I know you're wondering at this point, but it was hard to tell the exact cause of death of Hannah and Michaela. As the conditions in the car caused their bodies to become partly mummified. Their cause of death is assumed to be a combination of starvation, dehydration, and hyperthermia, which is heat exposure. According to Crystal Bonavian's reporting for Fox 13, as the investigation began after the girls' bodies were found, San Miguel County Sheriff Bill Masters said, quote, In my 37 years as sheriff, I have never seen anything as cruel and heartless as this, unquote. This investigation moved pretty quickly and really thanks to one snitch in the group. Frederick Alec Blair, who owned the farm where the car was parked that Michaela and Hannah died in, he took a plea really quickly. So initially he was charged with accessory charges and two counts of child abuse resulting in death. But he accepted a plea deal in May 2018 in order to testify against all the other defendants. And this removed the child abuse charges. So he still pleaded guilty to the accessory charge, which is a class four felony. Blair was sent to 12 years in prison. And at the time he was 25 years old, but he is eligible parole just next year in 2023. Blair said that he did not help the girls or report any of the abuse going on to authorities because he was afraid of Seuss and her supposedly soul shattering magic. According to Crystal Bonavian’s reporting for Fox 13, Blair had actually learned from a conversation he overheard between Seuss and Archer that Hannah was being held in the car. Now, Sheriff Masters said that Blair was really shocked to hear this because, quote, that all this time there'd been another girl on his property that he's never seen for the past two months, unquote. So it means that he knew Michaela was in the car, but he had no idea Hannah was in the car or that Hannah even existed. So it makes you wonder, where was Hannah being held to where the person who was at the farm all the time didn't know she was around? According to Christine Pelsek's reporting for People, Blair's attorney Kristen Hidnam said that the cult really changed Blair as a person. He went from, quote, a very congenial sort of happy person who would really give the shirt off his back to anyone, to someone who completely cut off all ties with his family and friends and community. He burned his possessions. He tried to kill his most beloved possession, which was his dog at the direction of the leaders. And it ultimately led to this tragedy where he rendered assistance in covering up the deaths of these children, unquote. Now at the time that Blair was taking this plea and taking what charges he did get, the four other defendants were pleading not guilty to all charges. The next person to receive a trial was Ashford Archer. This is Seuss's partner slash husband, depending on which source you read. Archer's trial only took about three weeks and he was convicted in March, 2019 of two counts of fatal child abuse and one count accessory to a crime. He was sentenced in June 2019 to 24 years in prison, and he was 53 at the time. The next court case was Nikisha Bramble, who was the mother of Hannah and Michaela, and Bramble was convicted in July 2019 of first-degree murder. She was sentenced in September to life in prison without parole, and she was 39 at the time of her sentencing. Madani Seuss, who was the leader of the cult, was one of the last to be convicted. In February, 2020, Seuss was acquitted of two first-degree murder charges, but then she was later convicted on two counts of felony child abuse resulting in death. She was sentenced on June 19th, 2020, and she got two 32-year terms to be served consecutively. So she received a total of 64 years. She was 40 at the time of her sentencing. According to Crystal Bonavian's reporting for Fox 13, San Miguel County Sheriff's Office Sergeant Dan Koval said of the case, quote, Miss Seuss said a number of things that basically corroborated our testimony. For example, she said from a young age, she thought herself as a creator. She also referred to the two girls as little B words. She stated that the girls were unclean and she didn't want them around her children. Unquote. Now we will talk about her sentencing and trial a little bit more here in a couple minutes, but we did have one more defendant and that was Ica Eden. And she hailed from Jamaica. She initially did not stand trial as she was deemed mentally incompetent in 2018 and she was sent for treatment at the state mental hospital. Now there's a gap where you don't really hear anything about that. And I don't know if they were able to then prove her competency after she sought treatment, but she actually got convicted in June, 2021, just last year on two counts of child abuse in the case. And this was two counts of child abuse causing death knowingly or recklessly. Both of these are class two felonies. She was the last of the co-defendants to actually be charged. And she would have received between 16 to 48 years for each one of these counts. But I'm not finding another report of her being sentenced. So I'm not exactly sure where that landed or if she's even been actually sentenced yet. So her path is a little less reported on and a little harder to understand when you're looking into this case. Now, race did become a huge part in the trial portion of this case. Four of the five defendants were black and the two victims were black. And this happened in a very, very white area of Colorado. Like I said, it's very, very small towns. It's a lot of farming communities. It's very white area of Colorado. In conjunction with that dynamic, this also happened right around the time of the death of George Floyd. He was a black man who died while in police custody. And I know that's like the most abbreviated way to say that story, but we really don't have time to get into all of that. But regardless, that also had heightened tensions between the black community and police officers, investigators, etc. Archer said in his case that racism was why he was being charged in general. And His defense really pointed out how the only one white co-defendant, Blair, had gotten a plea deal when none of the black defendants had that option. It was also pointed out that Blair was given some rights in how he was taken into custody and he also was allowed to have his cell phone to call his mom while the rest of them had been taken down by the SWAT team. And racism did come up in Seuss's trial as well, as she said that she'd been called the N-word while in custody by sheriff office supervisors on multiple occasions. And regardless of this being true or not, this was objected to by the prosecution and it was upheld by the judge. I'm assuming this was most likely on a hearsay basis. So it was actually removed from the record and was not, you know, applicable to the jury overseeing her case. Seuss made a really long statement during her court proceedings that basically ended in her saying that Michaela and Hannah were over sexualized and they were touching her children inappropriately and she just couldn't have that. And basically really like victim shamed through this whole thing and tried to make it seem like she was kind of defending herself and that these were really bad kids and really trying to displace all blame. According to Samantha Tisdell Wright's reporting for the Telluride Daily Planet, after listening to Seuss's statement, District Judge Carrie Yoder said basically the best thing that she could have said about this case overall. Now I'm going to give you one long quote. Um, Some of this, you know, it's kind of dot, dot, dot in between. There were other things said in between some of these, but I'm just going to give you one long quote. So Judge Yoder said, quote, Miss Seuss, you have said a lot, certainly more than we have heard ever but what you were saying and a lot of the ways you were just saying it supports the prosecution's case here. And we do know what happened to those babies. We do. We have a lot of evidence. They died because they didn't have any food. It's simple. They died because they didn't have any water. They died because they were ignored. They were ignored by all of you. So it's not a mystery. It is very clear, based on credible evidence presented and based on what you told me today, you believe that you are God or a godlike figure, and then you, in fact, played God with the lives of Michaela and Hannah in the summer of 2017. And I, under no set of circumstances, would say that you are an evil human being. But how you conducted yourself was evil. You were the captain of the ship. You were God. You made that decision and you failed to throw them oars and they listened to you because that's what they did. There was nowhere else to go. They got dutifully in their pink outfits. They were given no oars to get to shore. They were given no food to eat. They were given no water to drink. You made that decision. You were the captain of the ship. You were God. I just think it's tragic, unquote. Judge Yoder went on to condemn Seuss for her lack of remorse and trying to pull self-pity. So she really kind of gave Seuss what for. Okay, guys, so you know I have a lot of thoughts on this case. And I've peppered some in through this as I've talked about it, which I don't usually do, but... Otherwise, I'd keep you here all day with my thoughts. So let's get into it. So musing number one. This is part of why cult culture scares me, but I do find it very interesting because there is always an apocalypse. And you have to think that that gives a time frame to commit to abuse. Like I said, it's a long process to get people worked into this type of situation. And it's it's a selection process too. People like this know the people to pick to be able to manipulate them. But by instituting that there's going to be an apocalypse, it really gives them the ability to say, well, you got, you got to get in, you got to get out. Like it, it makes people really commit probably much faster than if that timeline, quote unquote, was not there. Using number two, something that does come up in a lot of reporting about this case is the voodoo angle with both Seuss and Archer being from Haiti. But even though she talks about kind of this magic and her being able to take souls and this and that, that didn't really scream voodoo to me. So I think that was a little bit more a manipulation of the media to kind of build some more intrigue there. Not really that you need more intrigue in this case because it's pretty terrible as is. Musing number three. So I want to touch base on the racial dealings here as far as there being, you know, talk of it being racist that Blair got a plea and how he was dealt with and that he was dealt with that way because he was white and everybody else was black. So there's really two ways that this goes. You either believe that and yeah, he got off because he was white or the other thing is, is you have to wonder, too, if police really quickly saw that he was the one that they could kind of break quickly, because this is one of those cases that you have to have somebody giving testimony. There's a lot of possibility for he said, she said, but having that person be able to say, yeah, they sent them to the car is really, really important. So, you know, regardless of black or white, there was going to be one defendant in the story that was going to get a lesser deal than the rest, because that would be the only way that the rest would be put behind bars for so long, is the reality of it. Does that make What any of them did, any better or any worse, absolutely not. But it unfortunately is how we get people like this behind bars. Musing number four. So I am so glad of Judge Yoder and I have kind of a girl crush on her because I love that she called Seuss out, especially when... Your reasoning is you're like defaming dead children, like saying that they were these sexualized beings that were like doing bad things to your kids. Like I have a very hard time thinking that that was the case that obviously was a move on Seuss to make it look like she had some kind of justification. And I am really glad, you know, I feel like. Over the last six months or whatever, we have had a lot of cases where judges have maybe not been super straightforward with defendants and Judge Yoder like went for it. So good for her because those are definitely things that needed to be said. They're definitely not things that affect Seuss in any way. A personality like that is still going to think they're God. So it's it's not going to change her in any way. But I'm glad that Judge Yoder really kind of put, you know, put her foot down with that. Musing number five, I am looking at, I was going to do it in this episode and then it kind of started getting like way, way long. Um, There are a number of active cults in Colorado and that may be something that I cover either in another episode or that might be some Patreon content since it's a little off of our normal Sunday content, but that is something that I'm looking to do here soon because there is some more kind of true crime activity around those cults. Musing number six, and I'm going to get a little more emotional here on this one. So if you've seen the pictures on the website or on social media regarding this case, Michaela and Hannah were just beautiful little girls with these beautiful smiles and just like, you know, one of those that you look at these pictures and you can almost see them as grown-ups and what they could have done in the world. Like they just, it gives me goosebumps because they just are so full of life. And, and you think about the situation they were in from that car that they were sitting in. You know, the main part of town was a 10 minute walk away. The medical center was nearby. There was a parsonage at the food pantry. Like all of the services were there, but they were kept from them. And that's the, the twofold to this story is it's not just cult activity, it's child abuse activity. And even in a home where a child is being abused by parents or some kind of adult in the household, It's not that the services are not available. It's that they are made no longer available. And that is the biggest travesty when a child is kept from growing up. That is absolutely the biggest tragedy in this case. And it is something that just like rips my heart out to think about that. Like there would have been so many people there that could have helped and nobody had an option. (sighs) Okay, guys. So this one was uh, like really off the wall. Thank you again, Donna, for this suggestion. I was not familiar with this case, so I'm glad that we got to cover it. I'm glad that we're telling Hannah and Michaela's story. So again, please keep the suggestions coming. We've got like another two months of them rolling up. So if you put in a suggestion recently, I promise they're coming. And please keep them coming because like I said, I love to connect with you guys. I love to hear you know, what you guys want to hear. And I want to make sure I'm giving you the content you want. So please connect with me. You can find me on social media at Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. You can also get me via email. There is a contact us page on altitudecrime.com. That's got a direct email to me. And as always, altitudecrime.com has source materials on the website for this Particular episode and all of the others. And a new little thing um, I had mentioned early on when I started the podcast, um, I do have other ventures. I do poetry. I am dabbling back into photography again. I did add on both the shop page and the about us page, you'll see a new section that says more from Amelia Allen Enterprises. That is my overarching company. And that's actually got links to both my poetry and my photography print page on Etsy. So if you want to check those out, please do. I want to make those a little bit more available to you guys if you are interested in that. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you for spending part of your week with me. You know I love it and I cannot wait to talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 46, The Norwood Doomsday Cult Murders, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.